O Lamb of God, we are your little lambs. It's all we are. Please hear our prayer to be more like you, Lamb of God. Amen. Because this is Heritage Sabbath, I want to share with you a story that comes straight out of our own faith community. It was March 1935. The 77-year-old man lay dying of cancer in Glendale Hospital in Los Angeles. He was a weary, worn warhorse. That's what he was, a warrior of the faith. Arthur Grosvenor Daniels. Century ago, president of our community of faith, the Seventh day Adventist Church. But his heart was troubled because as he lay there, he knew there had come over an estrangement. An estrangement between him and another veteran warrior of this movement. And so the dying man sent a message and asked, please if that veteran would come to the hospital to see him. Thus it was that 80-year-old William C. White, better known in history, remembered as Willie White, the son of Ellen and James White, director of the White Estate. Thus it was that Willie White was soon seated at the bedside of A.G. Daniels, this portion of the ensuing conversation was written up by Bert Holoviak from the General Conference's Office of Statistics and Archive. Willie White spoke first. I long for the time when we can sit down together as we used to do and talk over the progress of God's work. But Daniels was on a mission. He had not long to live. Brother White, he replied, give me your hand. Those two old war horses clasped their wrinkled hands. Brother White, let me have your hand. I have not rendered you very good service. To which White replied, oh, don't think of that. Think of what we've done when we were working together. Yes, Daniels leaned back. We have worked out some immortal principles sitting on the deck of that old steamer. And then he paused. I wanted my hand to clasp your hand as one of my truest friends on earth. And then, in a heart-to-heart -heart last meeting, Daniels admitted to his colleague that he had made mistakes in his leadership. But his face brightened as he confessed that, and these are his words, he had been bound up with the greatest character to have lived in the modern era, Willie White's mother. With a prayer, the two men parted, and two days later, Daniels died. But not, hallelujah, not before mercy came a-running. My, oh, my, ladies and gentlemen, how far can a little bit of mercy go? Apparently, even to the threshold of death. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain 
mercy. Did you know that there are nine Beatitudes in Matthew's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount? And would you like to guess which Beatitude is in the very middle of the nine as the shining centerpiece of those words of Jesus? Want to guess? Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount together. We'll read the Beatitudes together in this part two of Mercy Came A-Running. Go to the book of Matthew. This is the first overt appearance of the word, appearance of the word mercy in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, as you know, those of you who began the journey last week, Matthew is our textbook for this entire journey. So open your Bible, please, to Matthew's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, you're going to want to be in Matthew 5 today. Trust me, get into that word with me. So pull out the Bible in front of you in the pew rack. It's page... Uh, Page 651 in our Pew Bible. Same translation as mine, the New King James. I'll tell you what, let's do. Once you find it in your Bible, we're going to read the Beatitudes together. We'll read them out loud together. Let me read the little preamble, verse 1 and verse 2, and then you can just read it off the screen. Uh, we'll read it out loud. The, the famed and blessed, blessed Beatitudes. All right, Matthew 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So he's talking to people that say, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus, like you and me. Then, verse 2, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, let's, let's say it out loud together, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There they are, ladies and gentlemen, nine glittering diadems in the crown Worn by every disciple of Jesus. Nine crown jewels. And which one? You can do the arithmetic. Count them. There are only nine. It would have to be number five. Four on either side. Which one is the middle one? Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Because whether you're on your deathbed or on your daily walk, what matters most is that mercy comes a-running. So you can imagine my surprise. To discover, I'm worshiping through the Sermon on the Mount a few months ago, and I discovered that this centerpiece beatitude is the defining paradigm, get this, for the rest of Jesus' teaching in chapter 5 of Matthew. I mean, in fact, what Jesus does is he puts mercy on the big screen. And I've got to tell you, I, the, for me, the bigger the screen, the better. Don't you just love a big screen? IMAX rules. You've got to have the big screen. And so he takes this big screen, living color, live action. And he said, I'm going to show you seven video clips. I'm going to show you seven video clips of very everyday, very average kind of living. He said, I'm going to warn you now. This, 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 this is going to get messy. It's not always pretty. But let me flash these seven clips on the big screen of your life. 
And let me show you how mercy can come a-running through you. Through me. All right. Seven. And the surprise, by the way, the surprise, hands down, is number seven. You watch this. Jot them down. I want you to get all seven. Please, please take out of your worship bulletin today a brand new worship study guide, our study guide for part two of this series. Thank you, ushers, right now for being so fast in getting these, uh, these uh, study guides. Hold your hand up if you, five of you came in with one bulletin. You, you have to have today's dynamite quotation that you'll take home with a study guide. And while they're passing it out here, let me tell you, those of you who are watching on television right now, see that uh, website on the screen? Please go to that screen. I'd love to have you follow along with the same study guide. You can get it. Our website is www.pmchurchpioneermemorialchurch.tv. Brand new series called Mercy Came a Running. Click onto that series and you want part two. Part two is entitled The End of Perfection. When it says study guide right there, click study guide. You'll have the identical piece of paper almost that we have here. You'll have it all right there, only you'll have the answers at the very bottom. And by the way, leave that website up for a little bit longer, because if you missed last week's teaching, it is absolutely critical to an ongoing understanding of this whole theme that we're focusing on in this new season. So, you see last week's teaching, it's called When Mercy Grew on Trees. Download it for your iPod, download it for your laptop, download it for your computer. doesn't matter to me. Just get it. And sometime in your leisure, with the study guide, you'll be able to go through it as well. You fascinating story. Seven surprise entries into Jesus' family tree. All right. So you got that? But let's go. Let's, let, let's take that first line in, in uh, today's new study guide. There it is. There are nine Beatitudes in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And guess what? The shining centerpiece is, write it down, Blessed are the merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. Keep your pen moving. Mercy. Mercy is the defining paradigm for the rest of Matthew 5 as these seven big screen video clips we're going to take a look at right now. Video clip number one. Let's go. Verse 21. Matthew 5, verse 21. Real life, big screen, living. Here it goes. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said. By the way, if these words are not in red, take your Bible back. This is everything we read today is in red. They are the words of Jesus. All right, Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But, verse 22, I say to you, says Jesus, that whoever is angry with his brother or sister without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now watch this. Here it becomes radical. Verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, you go to church, all right? You're going to church. When you come to church with your gift, and there, remember, verse 23, that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Once you've done that, you can go ahead and die, just like A.G. Daniels, because you've done it. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, how much bad blood and heartache could be spared if we took Jesus' appeal for mercy here seriously. Because you know what? It's a surprise. Jesus does not say, may I, may I just remind you, he is not saying here that when you go to church and you're worshiping and suddenly you remember you did something wrong to somebody else, go quickly find that somebody else, whether it's a man, a woman, your roommate, your spouse, your neighbor, a friend, a stranger, a colleague, doesn't matter, and you tell them you did wrong. Jesus does not say that. 
No, no, no. He says, when you come to worship and you remember there's somebody nearby who has something against you, he's ticked off. She is mad and angry at you. This is the radical nature of it. You, the innocent one, you go and you make sure that it gets all put back together again. Wow, that is radical. You be mercy that comes running. I was talking this last week with a friend of mine who is president of a corporation, a large corporation. And he was telling me, he said, hey, Dwight, interesting story. He said, you know, I, I don't even know all my employees. I have a small group. We meet with a small group every week. And, um, you know, spiritual journey, small group. One of my employees is in that group. I had no idea what had happened to him. Somebody came to me two weeks ago in church and said, hey, did you know that so-and-so has quit working for you? He's ticked. And I said, you know, I've been meeting with him week after week. I had no idea. And so my friend and his wife, going home from church, decide to stop by that now former employee. It was not a comfortable meeting. Now that he knows what he knows. But Jesus isn't saying if it's not painful, go and do it. Jesus' point is no matter how painful initiating visits like that might be, mercy, in order to have healing, has to come running. And you're it. Jot it down, please. Real life clip number one. Mercy for the angry. Those are the people in our relationships. Mercy for the angry. The people in our relationships. Only, the only way anger in a relationship can be diffused is if you're the one that takes the first step. Jot this down, please. And so, write it down. Jesus' radical brand of mercy declares the innocent must be the initiator. The innocent must be the initiator of that reconciliation. Blessed are the merciful. Wow. For they shall obtain mercy. All right. Real life clip number two. Pick it up in verse 27. You have heard, Jesus still speaking, that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Everybody knows the seventh commandment. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I just want you ladies to know that the Sermon on the Mount is an equal opportunity employer and you're included as well. You look at a man with lust in your heart, you are a part of that. Don't you just push it off on us men. All right. Write it down, please. Talking about lust. Lust is the opposite of mercy. Watch this. Mercy lives to preserve, but lust lives to consume. Lust says, I got to have it. I got to have it. I got to have it. The opposite of mercy. Jesus exposes here the sin of the heart that nobody knows, nobody sees, of course, except for God himself. So for mercy to come a run into the man, to the woman who is struggling with the temptation to lust after another, Jesus does not describe third-party intervention. In fact, you know what else? I'm very glad to tell you this. Jesus does not say that the cure for this is going to be painful because I want you to get up and tell everybody that you know that you have lust in your heart. You don't have to do that. don't have to do that at all. Jimmy Carter did it once. You don't have to. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's in your heart. It's just between you and me. What I want you to do, cut it out. Cut it out. Take a look at that. Verse 29. Jesus says, if your right eye is offending you, what you're watching, cut it out. Just take it out. I'd rather go to heaven with one eye missing and be saved than to go to hell with two eyes good. That's Jesus' point. And what does he say in the next verse? Verse 30. If your right hand is offending you, boom, cut it off. I'd rather go to heaven with one arm and be saved than go to hell with two good arms. Cut it out. 
cut it off. It's the most merciful way that God can think of to stop our lusting. Confess it to me, cut it out. And by the way, if you do not, the life of lust, the life of lust is a life of heartache. I received a letter from a viewer out of state this week who was struggling with pornography. And my heart ached for the depth of this man's struggle who now fears going to prison. I share this with you men in particular. Men, men, men. I share it with you and me because of the horrific enslavement that Internet pornography is now exerting on males. Jesus' terse command to cut it out does not belittle the immensity of lust addiction. At the heart of your healing, my friend, there must be the sacrificial death of Christ for all our sins, every single one of them. And by the way, and this is why it is critical that you hear what we shared last week, if you have not heard it, if God can forgive, if God can put into the family tree of the Messiah, if He can put Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and David and Bathsheba and Manasseh, whom we noted last week, all were involved with sexual sin. If God can put them in the family tree of the Messiah, there is no addiction that can keep you out. No addiction. Hallelujah. So Jesus says, cut it out. With that cut it out comes his forgiveness. But it's not just the cut it out of forgiveness that we need. We need Calvary offers victory as well. There's the I can keep it cut out aspect of the cross. As I wrote to this uh, now friend in this country. I said, you know what? You're taking the right steps. But my friend, in order for this to be complete, you have got to go to somebody. This is assisted living moment now. You can't do this on your own. Go to a spiritual counselor, somebody you trust. You know, we're living in a day and age when anything, everything goes on American television. So you can talk. You don't have to tell everybody, but tell somebody. Tell somebody that you need help. Trust that person. Find that help. And then cut it out and keep it out. Mercy comes a-running. Mercy. Don't live with that secret any longer. Mercy's running to you, my friend, and it will lead you to help. You see, mercy for our private lives. Mercy for our private lives. Would you write this down, please? Real, real life clip number two. Mercy for the lustful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Real life clip number three. Write it down. Mercy for the married. This is where it gets a little unpretty now. This this isn't real pretty. All right? Mercy for the married. That's verse 31. Furthermore, Jesus said, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Be gone with you. Verse 32. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I told you some of these big screen clips are not going to be pretty. And a broken marriage, threatened with divorce, is never pretty. But mercy doesn't have to be a stranger with the brokenhearted or the unfaithful either. On the basis of Matthew 5, here's what some people have gone around and said. On the basis of Matthew 5, you can say adultery is the grounds for divorce. But because Matthew 5 is really about mercy, here's how it ought to read. And you ought to write this down, please. Adultery is the grounds for forgiveness. Forgiveness.
Again, I do not wish to belittle the fracturedness of some marriages. I understand that. I've been a pastor for just a few years. But surely, mercy came a-running could also be true for the most hopeless of marriages if, if, if both parties are willing, both parties are willing to let mercy run straight into their hearts and home. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy for our marriages. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Real life clip, write it down. Number four, mercy for the rash. R-A-S-H, rash. What are you talking about? Well, that's what Jesus is talking about. And here he goes, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. In fact, what I want to say to you, he says, is in verse 37. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. How much heartache could we spare ourselves if only we cut away our rash and hasty, passionate invectives. In the heat of anger, in the heat of passion, of argument, we, or rather I, dig myself sometimes into a very deep hole by letting my mouth keep running. Mercy comes a-running and says, cut the bull and keep quiet. Shh. Write it down. If you want to say something, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Don't keep running with your mouth. Mercy for our public testimony. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Real life clip number five. Here we go. But the big surprise is number seven. You watch. Real life clip number five. Mercy for the other cheek. Now we're moving into familiar territory. Remember these words. Where is this? Verse 38. You have heard, Jesus says, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, tunic, let her have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to her who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Write it down, please. The community of the extra milers and the other cheekers, that is the community of capital M, Mercy. That's where Mercy lives on this planet, in that community. I want you to watch Jesus in Caiaphas' courtroom early, early Friday morning. Some sorry wretch steps out of that rabble and walks up to the Savior's face and spews all the sputum he can gurgitate. Do you know what that's like? I was driving down the highway once, minding my own business, when the driver in front of me rolled down his window and just spit. And it landed all over the driver's side of my windshield. Trust me, it is not a very pretty sight. And if the glass had not been there, whoa. That's what that wretch did. You watch that night, the guard who is so infuriated by Jesus obeying his very words here, let your yes be yes and let your no be no, so that he makes no small talk, no big talk with his accusers. He just keeps quiet. That guard is incensed with rage. The burly guard reaches back and hauls off and slaps Jesus' head until it bounces on his shoulder. 
And when he gains his equilibrium and the head comes back up, the face more swollen now than a second before, when Jesus looks with those eyes into the man who has slapped him, there is nothing but mercy in those eyes. Wow. Mercy came a-running that night. And because it did, it can still come running today through you. And even me, when we turn our cheeks and go that extra mile. Mercy for our antagonists. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Real life clip number six. Write it down. Mercy for your enemies. I suppose this is the most familiar segment of the whole chapter five. <clears throat> mercy for your enemies. Pick it up in verse 43. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Would you write them down, please? Four proactive verbs by which you are to treat your enemies. Write them down for them. Number one, love your enemy. Number two, bless those who curse you. Number three, do good to those who hate you. Number four, pray for those who spitefully use you. Isn't that something? Could someone ever remain our enemy were we to live that way? Would you ever have an enemy? Did Jesus have an enemy? Not in his heart. In theirs. The whole world watched. I know, you, I know you've been on the web and you went, down, you went to those sites that normally you wouldn't go to. I know you saw it. The world watched with horror. That shaky footage taken on a cell phone as Saddam Hussein was hanged. Unknown bystanders are cursing him, cursing him. And just before the trap door opens, Hussein turns at them and curses them right back. And boom, he meets his maker. The whole world watched in dumbfounded amazement as Jesus Christ was executed. They cursed at him. Spit at him, jeered at him. But as they were nailing him to his cross, on that shaky video footage in the Gospels, you can still hear the anguished voice of the prisoner pleading, Father, I beg of you, forgive them. Do not hold, hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. Mercy came and run on Friday afternoon. Faithful Friday. Some of you here do have an enemy. Somebody who has been trying hard to get you gone. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. If you will love your enemy the way Jesus loved his, I promise, my friend, I promise, mercy will come a-running. And get this, hallelujah, mercy always wins in the end. Always. You live mercy. You win. You win. You watch. You win. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Jesus is now ready for his final clip. And this is the one that's the surprise. Watch this. Pick it up in verse 45. 
He's just said, love your enemies, verse 45, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. Do you think God, do you think God says, you know what, today, sunshine, only on my friends. Storm for everybody else. Rain only on the farmers that trust me. Drought for all the farmers. Are you kid? The sun shines on the whole human race. Some have spit in God's face. I told you about last week, YouTube. Those kids on YouTube are saying, if you exist, strike me dead and send me to hell. God says, let the sun shine on that boy. Maybe he'll change his mind someday. You're not going to strike you dead. Yet. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. That's what mercy is all about. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Look at this, verse 46. If you love those who love you, big deal. I mean, all the sinners and tax collectors do that. Verse 47. If you greet your brothers and sisters only, those are the only people you have over for Sabbath dinner. Are your close friends? Ah, shoot. That's what everybody does. Verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You say, hey, Dwight, what's, what, what's so surprising about video clip number seven? I'll tell you what's surprising. <laughs> Contrary to the opinion of many, it is not a portrait of us at all. Hold on to your seat now. Sadly, very sadly. Too many have read these words as a divine command. Come on, hurry, 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 hurry up. Be perfect. No more sins, no more mistakes. You understand? Get over it. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not in favor of sin. Read my lips. And neither am I championing imperfection. But I, there are some people who hear Jesus saying right here, you had better be perfect by the time I, I come. Do you understand me? There are some who hear the voice of Christ commanding, if you want to be accepted by God, you have to be perfect like God. And there are some who have grown up within my own faith community, even today, who are desperately struggling for that moral, <clears throat> for that sinless perfection that seems to elude them all the way through life. You know what? It's a part of our Adventist heritage that we'll never convene a meeting for and talk about. Nobody will tell you those stories. I'm talking about the fanatical fringe of our faith community who says you have got to be perfect even if it kills you and it's killing them. I got a book two weeks ago. I went in the next... I got the book on a Friday. I looked at the book. These are people championing truth. I went into my staff on the next Monday and I said, I cannot believe it. I just... I, I looked through this book with heartache. The, 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 the subplot is quick. You be perfect. And then the way the book shreds everybody who disagrees with the author. I said, where, where, where's, where's the mercy here? What is so tragic and so sad is that the perfectionistic reading of Matthew 5:48 totally misreads and consequently misunderstands the intentional positioning of these words as a caboose to mercy's train. Do you know what a caboose is? Does it, help me out here. Does a caboose go does a caboose go at the front of the train or at the back of the train? You tell me. Where does a caboose normally go? Normally. It's in the back. Matthew 5, 48 is the caboose. 
to mercy strength. It's not the engine. Too many people treat that. Well, that's the big engine. Just drive your life by that one. You are crazy. It's the caboose. It's the last piece. It's the seventh clip. That's tragic. The final, this is, this is the surprise, the final real-life clip that, we just are, that we're staring at right now is not about us at all. It's about our Father in Heaven. How do you like that? But read it again, verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Did you see that word, therefore? Do you know what therefore means? Therefore means, having said all that I have said to you, Okay, Jesus, what did you just say to us? Jesus replies, well, I have just taken you through six real life, sometimes messy, oftentimes painful, big screen experiences we all have. And I have shown you, my friend, in every one of them, the perfect opportunity for mercy to come running. I've been teaching you about mercy. Just like your Father in heaven. And that's a surprise in clip number seven. Would you write it down, please? Real life clip number seven, the mercy that comes a running is your Father. It's your Father in heaven. In fact, in the words of David, and this is so good, I put it in the study guide, and I hope you'll someday go back to Psalm 103, verse 8, and write in Eugene Peterson's The Message rendition. Do you see it? Put it on the screen for you. Look at this. Isn't this great? Psalm 103, verse 8 from The Message. God is sheer mercy and grace. Isn't that great? This afternoon, put that little rendition by Psalm 103, verse 8. In fact, would you write this down, please? Therefore, if you really want to be perfect like God, be merciful like God. You say, oh, come on, Pastor, you're just making that one up. Oh, to the contrary. One could so conclude were it not for the fact that Dr. Luke believed that is exactly what Jesus meant when he spoke the words of Matthew 5, 48. Because you see, when, when Luke writes up his version of the Sermon on the Mount, and he comes to the words that Matthew uses, Luke renders them this way. And you've got to see this to believe it. Isn't this incredible? Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Therefore, be merciful. <laughs> be merciful. As your Father in heaven is merciful. Isn't that beautiful? Come on, tell me. Is that beautiful or what? I mean, could it be any clearer? Could it? Write it down. Be perfect like your Father in heaven. Matthew 5:48 simply means be merciful like your Father in heaven. Luke 6:36. And is there anybody here who does not want to be like our Father in heaven? Anybody here? You don't want to be like our Father. But of course not. A hundred years ago, in this classic on the Sermon on the Mount, a little book called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. These words, you're going to, this, is the, this is the quotation. This is something else, and you get to keep it. Let me read it in your hearing. I'll put it on the screen for those of you watching. God is Himself the source of, what's the next word? All, all, all. Any mercy at all comes out of His heart. God is Himself the source of all mercy. His name is merciful and gracious, as Exodus 34 declares. And then I love this. Put a circle around these words, please. He does not treat us according to our desert. And that's old English for according to what we deserve. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a classic definition of mercy. When you treat somebody not the way she deserves, it's not the way he deserves, but you treat him that way anyway, that's called mercy. Mercy. He does not treat us according to what we deserve. Listen to this. He does not ask if we are worthy of his love, but he pours upon us the riches of his love to make us worthy. Isn't that great? He said, I'll make you worthy. He is not vindictive. 
He does not. He seeks not to punish, but to redeem. Even the severity which he manifests through his providences is manifested for the salvation of the wayward. He yearns. Well, I love this. He yearns with intense desire to relieve the woes of men and women and to apply his medicine, his balsam, his medicine to their wounds. Final line. This is this is the stinger right here. It is true, because some people say, hey, come on, do I, in the Bible, doesn't it say God will, no, will not clear the guilty? Watch this. I love this. It is true that God will by no means clear the guilty, but He would take away the guilt. Hallelujah. I gave you Calvary. I gave you the cross. You don't have to live guilty anymore. Isn't that something? I'll take your guilt away. You have nothing to fear from me. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, if at the heart of God is mercy, then does it not follow? Is this not, in fact, what Jesus is trying to tell us, that in the heart of His children on earth, there will also be mercy? The very heart of the Beatitudes, that's it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Hallelujah. Let me end with one more story. From our Adventist heritage. This is a sad story. I'm sorry. A tale of mercy neglected. In the 1860s, she was a missionary to Africa. The denomination she belonged to does not matter. But while serving her Lord in Africa, she opens up a book written by the man for whom this university is named. Jane Andrews. It's his book, History of the Sabbath. She opens it up. And there she discovered with her Bible, Jesus is not only Lord of salvation, but also Lord of the Sabbath. She continued to work in Liberia as superintendent of an orphanage until she was terminated. In 1866, listen. She returns to America, her homeland, eager to share her her gifts, her missionary gifts with her new community of faith. She hoped to find employment in Battle Creek, Michigan. But when she arrived, it seemed nobody had interest or time for a nearly 60-year-old spinster missionary from Africa. She was heartbroken. She could hardly wait to come. And now, she'd hoped to be welcomed into the community of her new faith. Homeless, get this, and nearly penniless. Hannah Moore, that's her name. She turned to a former missionary friend of hers from a previous denomination, and she asked if she might live with them. They said, come on up. Northwest Michigan. And in a drafty, poorly ventilated attic room, Hannah Moore, the new convert to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, took up residence and worked for a dollar fifty a week for that family. Ellen and James White, who were absent from Battle Creek when Hannah Moore was turned away, began to correspond to Hannah. They invited her to come and live with them in Battle Creek, but the winter had set in and there was no way she could reach them now. And besides, the draft and the chill and the smoke from that poorly ventilated chimney went to her lungs. And after several pitiful, pitiable letters, 
that she wrote to the whites, Hannah Moore succumbed to pneumonia. I don't need to tell you that when the whites returned to Battle Creek, 41-year-old Ellen was nearly livid with that congregation. I said nearly livid. What was on her heart? She made sure we would know as well. In a little collection of nine volumes, in volume one of that collection, here are her words. From what we have since learned of the cold, indifferent treatment which Sister Moore met with at Battle Creek, it is evident that in stating that no one in particular was worthy of censure in her case, and I just love this, because you see her husband had written a little piece in the, ad, in the Review and Herald, and in that piece he said, you know, I understand nobody in particular is to blame for this. Now listen to how she handles him. <laughs> or it. It is evident that in stating that no one in particular was worthy of censure in her case, my husband took altogether a too charitable view of the matter. Polite way for saying he was dead wrong. It's wrong. Listen to that 41-year-old woman go on. When all the facts are known, no Christian could but blame all the members of that church who knew her circumstances and did not individually interest themselves in her behalf. Everybody's to blame. She records some of the letters. The last letter Hannah Moore wrote, it ends because she, she, she couldn't celebrate her Sabbath in the home. She had to, they said, you could celebrate it up there in your room. And the room, did I tell you, smoky and chilled and so near the very end of her last letter, I had another wakeful season last night. How can you sleep in that? And feel poorly today. Pray that whatever is God's will may be accomplished in and through me, whether it be by my life or death, yours in hope of eternal life, Hannah Moore. P.S. If you know of any way which I can reach you sooner, please inform me. H.M. She died. Now, the 41-year-old pen picks up. She being dead, yet speaketh. Her letters, which I have given, will be read with deep interest by those who have read her, her obituary in a recent number of the review. She might have been a blessing to any Sabbath-keeping family who could appreciate her worth, but she sleeps our brothers and sisters at Battle Creek and in this vicinity could have made more than a welcome home for Jesus. You could have had Jesus. You could have had him. You sent him away. Our brothers and sisters at Battle Creek could have made more than a welcome home for Jesus in the person of this godly woman. But the opportunity is past. It was not convenient. They were not acquainted with her. She was advanced in years and might be a burden. Feelings of this kind barred her from the homes of the professed friends of Jesus who are looking for his near advent. Oh, sing those early advent hymns. Ah, oh, tell me Jesus is coming. We thrilled to it. They thrilled to those hymns. They were no more ready for Jesus to come than the man across the street. Bring it on, Jesus. Oh, we love these old hymns. Let's have another Heritage Weekend and celebrate. Jesus is coming soon. 
Feelings of this kind barter from the homes of professed friends of Jesus who are looking for his near advent and drove her away from those she loved to those who opposed her faith to northern Michigan in the cold of winter to be chilled to death. She died a martyr to the selfishness and covetousness of professed commandment keepers. End quote. God help us. God help us not to repeat the story of Hannah Moore today. Somebody that says, all I want to do is worship in your church. I have to cross your campus to get to your church. Can't you let me come here to ban, to ban such a one from coming to us? God, help us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Therefore, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Let us stand for the benediction. Oh, God, we'd love to leave it ancient history. It's not about us. Holy Father, what is that history if it is not to inform the present and guide us into the future? And so on this heritage Sabbath, have mercy on us, dear God. Do not let Andrews University or their homes, or my home, live without mercy. Holy Father, we know the truth. Mercy must come running quick right now to us. Assure us of a new start and a fresh beginning. And then promise us that if we will walk with the Christ of the Sermon on the Mount, mercy, His mercy, shall come a-running through us to this world right now in this generation, we pray. And now may the God of all mercies, the Father, and the Son who came to live before us that radical mercy, and the Holy Spirit who would teach us how to live, be with you and me, as in the name of mercy we too go running. Amen.